0: Uh, Let's pray together, please. Father, as we've sung, you are indeed a great God, and all that you ordain is right. And so we understand that as we come to your word, we're going to see you in it, and we're going to see you That uh, you are right, and what you say is right and good and even great. And as we spend some time tonight thinking about a person that many would think of as great, we recognize that you are greater still. And so we pray that you would draw our focus, our attention to you and to your greatness above all else tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So please turn in your Bibles to. 2nd Chronicles chapter 1 in the Old Testament 2nd Chronicles 1 2nd Chronicles 1 we're continuing a series a study that we've been on uh, since the 1st of January or so uh, going through these books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles and it may seem strange to some of you Whether you're here regularly or not, it may seem strange uh, to spend an extended amount of time uh, with teenagers in the Old Testament. But actually, we know that the Old Testament gives us depth and uh, significance to what Christianity is all about, to the gospel that we claim to believe, to the Christian gospel. Now, when I say the Christian gospel— What I mean is the message that God really exists, that God has caused everything else in the universe to exist. It all exists because he has created it. All people have life because God has given them life, and so our lives are accountable to God because God is the one who has given our lives to us, and yet all of us, in our own ways, have shunned God. We have turned from Him. We have fallen. We have rebelled against Him. And so now we stand under His good and His just wrath. And yet this good God has looked upon our otherwise helpless estate, and He has made it possible for us to turn back to Him, to be accepted by Him. He has sent His own Son, Jesus of Nazareth, to... Live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve to die. Jesus went to the cross in our place for our sins, and three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead. And so now God accepts all those, all people who will, by faith, turn from their sins and trust in Christ. That's what I mean by the Christian gospel. So, want to start there and just say that if you hear nothing else tonight, I hope you hear that. But I also want to say that we could get all of that info from the New Testament. So if we just wanted to focus on that, we wouldn't have to go to the Old Testament. So why do Christians need the Old Testament? One answer is that God has given us the Old Testament as something of a source of, I think you could say, instruction and encouragement for when our hope in God seems to fail. In fact, that's one of Paul's descriptions of the Old Testament, that it was written for our instruction and for our encouragement in hope. Another basic answer is simply that uh, the Old Testament makes the story of the Bible better. God is a master storyteller. So I could tell you a story and I could give you just the highlights and, and you know, so I, I could say something like, hey, the Cubs won the 2016 World Series. And to some of you, you would say, okay, great story. But if I gave you, like, the backstory of everything that led to the Cubs winning the World Series, like 108 years of mostly misery and failure and meltdowns, Uh, and then the way that they progressed the years leading up to the World Series, maybe you would have more of a depth of appreciation and admiration for what they accomplished. And obviously, the Bible tells a better story. If you can imagine a better story than the Cubs winning the World Series, it's told in the Bible. The Bible tells a better story. And so we need the Old Testament Scriptures to solidify our hope in Jesus and to deepen our appreciation and admiration for him. So, tonight, I hope that we gain some encouragement from the story of Solomon. Last week, Neil uh, taught and helped us to see how King David helped his son Solomon transition into his role as the king of Israel. This happened about 900 BC, so we believe this is an actual historical event. And the books of Chronicles are especially helpful because Chronicles takes many events, many of the main events that we could read about elsewhere in the Old Testament, and it provides its readers with a fast-paced overview of a lot of the Old Testament, really in some ways of all of Old Testament history. And so tonight we're going to cover the story of God's people under the reign of Solomon. And you've got a space there in your bulletins to take some notes if you care to do so. And tonight we're going to see in these chapters in Chronicles 3, uh, categories, I guess you could even say th- uh, three chapters, so to speak, of the story of Solomon. So you can get these main points, and then, and then we'll search what the Scriptures have to say about them. So here's, here's the first chapter, you could say, or the first scene. Number one, the Lord's King. Number one, the Lord's King. We read in 2 Chronicles 1, 1, that Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom. And the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. And then you read in verses 2 through 6 about Solomon seeking the Lord so that he can worship him. Uh, he goes, he, he speaks to Israel, and he takes an assembly with him, and they go up to what is called the high place, which was, we're told, at Gibeon, because the tent of meeting of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there. And so uh, Moses had a tent in which he met with God, and it was brought to Gibeon, and Solomon said, let's go up to the tent where God is, and let's seek him, and let's ascribe Worship to him. So, verse five, chapter one, verse five. The bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and the assembly sought it out. They're looking for it. Solomon is is searching. You could say he sought the Lord, and he did that. I think probably because he was obeying what his father David had told him. So, just a couple of chapters earlier. First Chronicles 28 and verse 9, David said to Solomon, Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. And he gave him other instructions. But I think Solomon probably sought the Lord because he wanted to obey his father. So he sought to worship the Lord. Verse 7 tells us that that, that very night that Solomon was seeking the Lord, the Lord appeared to him. And said, Ask what I shall give you. And so, verse 8 says that uh, Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to my father David. You've made me king in his place. Lord God, let your word to David, my father, be now fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and to come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? So even in asking for wisdom and knowledge, it would seem that Solomon asks for those things because he is seeking the Lord himself, and he's seeking a way to lead God's people in a way that would be pleasing to the Lord. Help me, Lord, to know how to guide these people, how to tell them how to go about their ways. So he asked the Lord for Wisdom, And, of course, the Lord responded because Solomon had not asked for possessions or wealth or honor or victory over enemies or long life. The Lord actually was going to give Solomon all of those other benefits in addition to the wisdom and knowledge that he asked for. And so chapter 1 ends explaining some of the things that Solomon acquired, some of the wealth that he had. Verse 14, 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Uh, Verse 17, they imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, a horse for 150. So he's gathering horses and chariots and horsemen and silver, and he's acquiring wealth for himself. That is the picture that Chronicles gives us of the Lord's king, one who ascribed worship to the Lord, one who asked for wisdom and one who acquired wealth. So that's, that's the picture. That's the uh, introduction to the Lord's King. That's the opening scene. Here's number two, and this is the longest one. Number two is the Lord's Temple. The Lord's Temple. One of the categories for our game uh, tonight, uh, places where people worship. And, and uh, thankfully, our group came up with Temple Temple as one of those answers. That is a correct answer. We're going to see uh, from about chapter 2 of Second Chronicles to about chapter 7 described this temple that Solomon, we're told in chapter 2, verse 1, Solomon purposed to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. There's a couple ways we could uh, analyze this section. We could just talk about how the temple was um, constructed, like the structure of it, the way it was built, and then what happened when they finished it, when they completed it, and then the ceremony that they held to consecrate the temple uh, when it was completed, so we could just go through it chronologically. But what I'd actually like to do is, is to talk more about the symbolism of the temple. Like, what was significant? Why was this temple that Solomon built a big deal, both for the people in his day and then even for us. Like, why would we, why would it matter to us that Solomon built this temple? So several things I want to touch on here, and you don't have to write them all down for notes, but maybe it could help you, uh, help be a guide for you. So uh, let's think, first of all, about what was the purpose of this temple? Why did this temple exist? Well, Again, Kathy kind of gave it away in her uh, in her game tonight, whether she realized it or not. A temple primarily was built as a place for worship, a place where people could come and ascribe honor and worship to a god. That was what temples were for. Now, this temple specifically, you could read what Solomon said about it in chapter two and verse, starting in verse three. Solomon, we're told, sent word to Hiram king of Tyre, and he actually picked out this guy specifically because this was a friend of his father, David. You could read about that. We did read about that back in First Chronicles 14, but here's what Solomon said to this other king about the temple in verse 3. As you dealt with my father, David, and sent him cedar to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. And dedicated to him for the burning of incense of sweet spices before him, and for the regular arrangement of the showbread, and for burnt offerings morning and evening, and on Sabbaths and the new moons and the appointed feasts of the Lord our God, as ordained forever in Israel. The house that I am to build will be great, because our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house since heaven... Even the highest heavens cannot contain him. Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? Now, we'll stop there, but in that statement, Solomon actually says a great deal about what this temple does, what it's for, why it's there, why he's building it. He says, Why would I build a house? For the Lord, when even the heavens cannot contain Him, this is what Jonathan read for us at the beginning—a a statement that Isaiah makes in, in Isaiah 66 about heaven being His throne and earth being His footstool, describing the greatness of God in the earth. Which means that even this earthly temple was really just a—you could say—a localized display of a universal reality. This local temple was really just to be a picture of God's reign in all the universe. Solomon's basically saying, just like Isaiah said, the universe is God's temple. It's it's why Isaiah, uh, uh, when he was uh, describing the holiness of the Lord, he heard uh, the angels say that the whole earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. You don't have to go to a place and see the glory of the Lord. The whole earth is filled in us. So this temple... It was just a localized display of a universal reality. Its purpose was to show what is true everywhere in the world. That's the purpose of it. Now, the place of the temple is also significant. Look down at chapter 3 and verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. Now, I want you to think about previous things maybe you would have read in the Bible. What is significant about Mount Moriah? One is mentioned here, but there's another one. David appointed this place on the threshing floor of Ornon. We read that back in 1 Chronicles 22. There's something else significant about Mount Moriah. Something happened there. Go ahead, William. It's where Abraham was called to go up. You got the story right. You just mixed the names up. That's good. Abraham was called to go up to Mount Moriah, remember, and offer his son as a burnt offering to the Lord. And as he was about to raise the knife, what happened? Okay. Voice from heaven. Abraham, do not harm your son. Now I see that you have not withheld him. And so there was in the bushes a substitute right? A sacrifice to take the place of Isaac, which is exactly, or at least very similar to what happened in the story of David on this threshing floor that's described here. Remember, David had sinned against the Lord. There was a plague against all the land. And David said, I'm the one who sinned. Why is the plague against the whole land? And so David basically puts himself as a substitute and says, do away with me and have mercy on the people. So this temple was built on a place, on a site known for substitution and sacrifice, which is an indication that that would be a significant thing, for which, for what would happen in the temple. So, the, so the place of it is strategic. Even what the tabernacle, uh, what the temple uh, was patterned after, is significant. So when you read, for example, chapter three and verse. Uh, starting in verse 8, about the most holy place, its length corresponding to the breadth of the house, uh, was 20 cubits. Its breadth was 20 cubits, overlaid with 600 talents of fine gold. Uh, Verse 10, The most holy place he made two cherubim of wood and overlaid them with gold. The wings of the cherubim together extended 20 cubits. And so so how the cherubim were built with their wings touching one another. Or you go to chapter 4 and verse 19. Solomon made... All the vessels that were in the house of God, the golden altar, the tables for the bread of the presence, the lampstands, lamps of pure gold to burn before the inner sanctuary is prescribed, uh, flowers, lamps, tongs, purest gold, snuffers, basins, dishes. So all of these things in the temple were put there because they were, They had also been put in Moses' tabernacle. Moses had built the tabernacle as a place where God could dwell among his people, and so now the temple is being patterned after the tabernacle because it was to show that God was going to dwell there with his people. And then you get clues even later on, for example, in in Revelation about God's future dwelling, about how the new Jerusalem is also built as a cube like the most holy place was, and uh, how how there's a glimpse into heaven with the Ark of the Covenant there in in, uh, Revelation 15. So it's Patterned after a previous tabernacle, but it's also previewing what God's dwelling with his people would be like in the future. There was also praise that took place within the temple. Uh, if you go to chapter 5 and starting in verse uh, 13, when the temple was completed, we're told that it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments, in praise to the Lord, they sang, for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. They sing similar things in chapter uh, chapter 7, verse 3, when all the people saw the All the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple. They bowed down their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And all this gives us the sense that the temple was built as a place where praise was to be offered to God because because of his goodness, because of his covenant love with his people. And they're praising God because His presence is there. So, again, you see this in a couple different places. Chapter 5, at the end of verse 13, "...the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God." And then almost identical wording in chapter 7, verse 1, "...Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering, the sacrifices." And the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Which recalls what happened even at the end of the book of Exodus when Moses had built the tabernacle. Again, same thing. They built the tabernacle. The Lord's presence fills it, causing them to praise the Lord. And so Solomon leads the people in a prayer of dedication of this temple to the Lord. So from chapter 6, starting in verse 12, all the way down to verse 42. And he, and some of the prayer is pretty repetitive because he's asking for a lot of the same things over and over again. But that's actually helpful because it helps us to know specifically what it is he's Praying for, so for example, if you go to uh, verse twenty-two, so ch- uh, s- chapter six and verse twenty-two, Solomon prays to the Lord. If a man sins against his neighbor and is to is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants. Uh, verse twenty-four. If your people Israel are defeated before your before the enemy. Because they've sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people. Or verse 26, when heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants. Verse 30, similarly, hear from heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and render to each whose heart you know. Verse 33, hear from heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Verse 35, Hear from heaven, verse 39. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayers and their pleas, and maintain the co- their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. So what are you noticing there? What are some of the things Solomon's asking for? What's he repeating? Good, yeah. Hear us, hear us from your dwelling place in heaven, and forgive us. And, and, he, and you know, he's praying all this like, If this happens, if we sin in this way, if we fall away in this way, if we don't acknowledge you in this way, and we cry to you, then hear us and forgive. So that, did you catch, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. So you could say that he is asking for God to make himself known in the world by keeping his covenant with his people and forgiving their sins. He concludes the prayer. You can read it there uh, in verse 41 and 42. He asks, Arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. So he's recalling the Lord's steadfast love and praying that he would keep it towards the people. The Lord responds with an answer. The Lord responds with promises. So chapter 7 and verse 11, Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. And then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. And I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And this is where God gets very specific about the way he's going to answer Solomon's prayers. Look at chapter 7 and verse 13. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, then if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So notice that that is a direct answer to the request that Solomon had. Now, a lot of times we Americans like to quote a verse like that and think, well, if everybody will just get right with God, you know, then like our country can be better off. Well, generally that's probably true, but that's not what this verse is saying right? The verses is God saying, Solomon, I heard your specific prayers for these specific things at this specific time, in this specific place, and I'm going to answer it exactly the way that you asked. I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive your sins, because that's exactly what Solomon had asked for. Now, let's think, uh, why in the world, how in the world would all of this, any of this, matter to us? How would this apply to us? Well, Uh, Lots of ways, but I'll give one specific one. There is a phrase in the New Testament uh, where uh, Paul tells the Corinthian believers, um, he says, your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that there is no one building on earth like there was in Solomon's day where God's presence and His glory fills that one place, and then you go into it and you experience all of that before God, Paul is saying that your body now is where the Lord dwells. It's where God's Spirit dwells. And so, he says, therefore, here's the application, glorify God in your body. That's the application. Glorify God in your body. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to display the presence of God in our midst and to give us the Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's the second part. I told you it was the longest. That's the Lord's temple. Here's the last one. The Lord's greatness. You see this in chapter 8 and 9, and I'll just summarize a few things here. The Lord's greatness. So we read in chapters 8 and 9 about more accomplishments of Solomon, how he built Cities, how he hired workers, how he brought in people to lead in worship in the temple, how he was entrusted with great wealth and wisdom. So let me me ask you, was Solomon great? Yes, Solomon was great. As he was entrusted with this wealth and wisdom, all of it pointed back to God. So let me show you this. Look at uh, chapter 9 and verse 8. As Solomon uh, would entertain guests, one of the most famous guests, and he had king, apparently he had kings and queens from all over the world visit him. One of the uh, specific stories we're told here is about when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame in Solomon and came to test him with hard questions, and he uh, answered all of them. She says in, in chapter 9, we'll start in verse 5, she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, half the greatness of your wisdom was not told me. You surpassed the report that I heard. And then go down to verse eight. She says, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on his throne as king for the Lord your God because your God... Loved Israel and would establish them forever, he has made you king over them that you may execute justice and righteousness. It's as though this queen knows that the God of Israel is a God of justice and righteousness, and she's saying to Solomon, God has put you on the throne so that you can execute justice and righteousness to show people from other nations like me what he is like. And then you go down to chapter 9 and verse 23. Uh, Verse 22, we'll start. Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom and all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put into his mind. God put Solomon's wisdom there. So was Solomon great? Yes, he was. Was Solomon the greatest? No. No. We don't have as specific of details here in Chronicles as we do in Kings, but we know from 1 Kings Solomon failed in multiple ways. Solomon had many wives who led his heart away from the Lord. Solomon's wealth, though it was massive, was acquired oftentimes by going down into Egypt, something that the Lord way back in Deuteronomy has, had forbidden his king to do. Solomon was not the greatest So who was greater than Solomon? Well, in the New Testament, uh, Matthew tells people like us who would worry about what we should eat or what we should drink or what we should put on or where we should live. He says, why don't you think about the lilies of the field? Because even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And if God cares for the lilies of the field, how much more does he care about you? Which is to say that God's creation and His provision is that to which the wealth of Solomon points. And then a little bit later in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, uh, Jesus Himself made a statement and said that the Queen of the South will rise up in judgment against this generation because... She heard of the wisdom of Solomon and he told, he told them, Someone greater than Solomon is here. And they weren't listening to his words the way the queen had listened to the words of Solomon. Now, if someone would want to sit at the feet of Solomon and gain wisdom, that's a good thing, right? So how much greater is it to sit at the feet of one greater than Solomon and hear his wisdom? And how foolish it would be for us to reject that wisdom. It's almost like you could say that Solomon had received power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Except that when you get to the end of the Bible, you don't read those things about Solomon. They're sung about the greater son of David. The lamb who was slain, whose blood ransomed people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The one who sits on the throne forever and ever. Let's pray. So, God, we recognize through this section not just the greatness of a man, but your greatness and your glory and your power and your might and your wisdom and your strength and your salvation. So, I pray that our response is one to. Uh, where we want to uh, seek the Lord as Solomon did, uh, to be filled with the Spirit of God as the temple of the Holy Spirit, one to sit at the feet of Jesus, learning of his wisdom and attributing and ascribing to him the glory that is due his name. So we pray you'd help us to do that even now as we uh, sing together again and as we discuss. Uh, tonight, some things uh, that we think you are doing in our midst. So we ask you'd be our guide in all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.